There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. And a very big welcome to this, the first of our monthly special audio magazine shows. In this special, we'll ask and hopefully answer a question, one that is on the minds of city councils and concerned citizens across the country. Is China's recycling ban a disaster or an opportunity? Let's start by framing the problem created by the decision of the Chinese government. Here I'm quoting from Mark Solomons in an April 9th article in The Age, quote, Australians each generate about two tonnes of waste annually, with half of it destined for recycling. Until recently, a significant portion of this, up to a third in some categories, was sent to China, end quote. Yes, and the Australian government estimates that this amounted to about 600,000 tonnes of Australian recycling, which made its way to China annually. Well, so what percentage of Australian recycling is affected? Well, under these new Chinese rules called the National Sword and now the Blue Sky Regulations, it's 99% of what we've been sending up until now is no longer acceptable. So effectively the door's closed. That's right, and there's more. Blue Environment, a waste recycling consultancy that was employed by the federal government to find out just how much we were sending, found out that in the course of one year, 2016 to 2017, we actually shipped from Australia 1.2 million tonnes. And that's an even bigger problem because the quantity is so much higher than we thought we knew. And that's how it's been here in Australia for years. Most of us didn't think twice about where our recycling went. It just, well, went somewhere. Mm. It wasn't a headline issue. And it didn't hit the evening news until something changed. An unprecedented step for a city in this state. Ipswich has separate bins and separate lids, but they now share the same destination. Curbside recycling here has been scrapped. It is a global issue. It's not just for Ipswich. It will be, this whole nation will be affected by it. It's mostly about money. China's foreign waste ban has dramatically impacted demand back home. Instead of charging $30 a tonne, council's recycling contractor demanded $150. Ratepayers would have been up for an extra $2 million per year. I think that's ridiculous, to be honest. Yeah. I think that's pathetic. Maybe save elsewhere. And despite extensive educational efforts... Plastic bags go in the refuse bin, Dad. The other major issue is the majority of people not getting it right. The contamination rate in Ipswich sits at 52%, but the recycling contractor needs it to be at 25%. They don't rinse out their cartons correctly, so there's a lot of wastage even just going into the bin that shouldn't be in there. Councils say they won't be changing collection days or even removing recycling bins. It's just that everything will now go straight 
to the dump. We believe there will be many other councils that follow suit. He says the only solution is a major shake-up in the way we handle our waste. The long-term solution, though, is to move to zero waste and waste to energy. Or urgent financial support from the state government. So, Ben, are other councils considering doing the same? Max, at this stage, Brisbane, the Gold Coast and Moreton Bay councils have ruled out changing their recycling policies. I'm joined now by Ipswich's Mayor Andrew Antonelli. Andrew, how have they got it so right and Ipswich has it so wrong? I think it's just because we're in that part of the tender process at the moment. So our contract uh, has completed. We're in uh, negotiations with a new contract and unfortunately we have uh, met the wrong side of that contract and uh, we're in a position now where the contract... um, is just too expensive. Okay, no worries. Thanks, Mayor. Appreciate your time. Back to you. And that was a Channel 7 news clip of Ipswich Council's decision to end its recycling program. Which is concerning. Yeah, certainly is. It's been drilled into us for decades now that we put our recyclables in the recycling bin, and that made us feel good. You too can be a recycling superhero in your own home. <laughs> exactly. But for the people of Ipswich Council, as you've just heard, that's now been turned on its head. Which, contrary to pop culture, is not how we're used to feeling down under. (laughs) This is a terrible situation, but before we get all excited about it, maybe let's go back to the root of the issue and go from there. So first, what exactly was the decision by China? I asked Kat Copsey, City Councillor in Port Phillip, Melbourne, to explain. So, the most immediate recent thing that has changed is that China has stated now definitively that it will no longer be accepting low-grade or highly contaminated recycling loads. That has had an impact on our local recycling collection and disposal. A lot of waste that was being generated in Australia was going, was being shipped off to China for processing. And here's Mark Dicker, Director of Planning and Environmental Services at Blaney Shire Council in the central west of New South Wales. So firstly, it's the threshold has changed. So China has changed the threshold on what they call contamination on the material that they will take. Now, to put that in perspective, when you think contamination, you think a nappy or um, something that's non-recyclable in the yellow bin. Mm -hmm. That that threshold has been explained to me as you think of a 600ml Coke bottle. Mm -hmm. Okay, empty simply the label and the red ring on the top, not even the cap, still doesn't meet the threshold level of which China will take. So it's not all of our recycling, Mark. No, we can still export some of our recycling to China, who have been the largest recycling importer for about a decade now, but definitely no contaminated plastics anymore. Okay, so by contaminated, I'm imagining things like cling wrap, plastic containers of motor oil, takeaway containers with food scraps, that sort of thing? Yes, all of the above. But as Mark Dicker said, China's standards are so high that even a Coke bottle would be rejected because of the plastic lid. So the question really is, what are we doing with that stream now? Well, it's a good thing to do early on, make this distinction here between the people who are doing the recycling work and the people responsible for it. Councils normally employ a waste contractor. They're the ones who are actually doing the work on the ground. That's usually a private waste management company. And some of these companies operate all over the country. In fact, some of them are multinational. So if one contractor can and does have the waste contract for multiple councils, do we know 
as ratepayers what those companies are doing with the waste that up till now went to China? No, we don't, Rich. We don't know exactly what each company is doing because they're doing different things depending on which council they're in. So it actually still depends on the city or shire council we're talking about. Each council is responsible for the waste in their area, and that's part of the three core responsibilities of each council. That's their rates, roads, and rubbish. Oh, yeah, the three big R's. So councils are responsible for what happens to the waste in their area. That's right. And some councils have done a lot of work on their recycling processes, and they're really not keen on giving them up. Yeah, here's Mark Dicker again talking about the work they've done at Blaney Shire Council on their recycling program for over three decades now. Look, we've been under significant pressure since probably, what month we now, May? I think it was February we were under significant pressure to make a decision as to what to do. Mm. Uh, and as a council and as a region, we held the line that, you know, we built up this this process over the last 20, 25, no, nearly 30 years now. Mm. So we've maintained that line and not landfilled it. Yeah. Uh, our intention is that we will probably pay an increased processing rate mm-hmm. so that different markets can be found for these materials. And that's great to hear that Blaney Shire is not willing to give up on the recycling program, at least without a fight. But some councils have started to stockpile. That is, they're letting the stream of recyclable material that now has nowhere else to go build up and build up. In fact, in some cases, they're putting it into landfills in a slightly separate area so that at some point in the future, we're not sure when, they can dig it back up and put it back into the recycling stream. Okay, so they're really putting it into the ground until they can find a solution, which is really, I suppose, like burying the problem. Yeah, that's true. As weird as this is for me to say, Rich, that might not actually be the worst solution. Mm. I'm actually relieved that some councils are burying their rubbish. You might be asking, why is Mark saying that? But there is some talk, actually, that some of these councils and some waste contractors are seeing an opportunity to start burning some of this rubbish instead. This is called incineration, and this falls within this group of activities called Waste to Energy. And here's Dougood Holmes, climate activist, on this very burning issue. So, um, you know, the way that the government is legislating for landfill fees and they're trying to avoid that, that's then driving them to take the material somewhere else like an incinerator. And they go, oh, win-win, right? You get to avoid landfill fees. So therefore, anyone who's collecting waste like JJ Richards in the street is quite happy to hand it over to the incinerator operators. So there's this huge push, especially with the China freeze on recycling, to say, no, don't worry, we'll just put incinerators in and burn the stuff. It gets rid of the problem. They disappear. But to me, that's just landfill and recycling material redirected into the sky. Yes. Huge environmental hit. It has got no concern for the planet or what's right, especially if the stuff when it gets buried is actually inert for yes. hundreds or thousands of years. I know that's also a bad thing. Yes, but it's a but less what is, immediate problem. Yeah, what is the lesser evil right now? And this waste recovery goes by many names. And in fairness, whichever name is used, it really covers a basket of different things. So when you hear a waste energy or energy reclamation or waste recovery, there's one very important thing to remember. If it includes incineration, which is the burning of reusable or recyclable material, that's about the worst thing we can do. For sheer environmental and health reasons alone. But we'll get into more about incineration later on. Okay. It sounds like costs have gone up for councils as they scramble to cope with this new and huge quantity of waste material. Yeah, you're right, Rich. Costs have gone up dramatically, which you'll hear straight from the folks working in council to deal with this crisis. 
So to finish off this overview, councils, we've learned, have largely not been doing any of their own recycling. Your recycling has been broken down and reused in China. And most councils never expected to have to deal with our waste without being able to ship it off, out of sight, out of mind. Now, as a result, councils without the infrastructure to do any recycling themselves have ended up in a situation of being buried under a pile of waste. Hello listeners, it's Mark here. I thought I'd take just a couple minutes here to tell you a quick personal story, a bit more about me and why I decided to uh, start the show. I grew up in a very unenvironmental way, and as you probably heard with the other interviews I've done, I'm really fascinated by people who get exposed to an environmental mindset at a young age, who have a childhood full of environmental activities or learning about science, about nature, because I didn't have that. I did have some practical exposure to nature. I raised a dozen chickens, had a little egg business selling eggs door-to-door to my neighbors in my little red wagon. But I did some pretty unsustainable things as a kid. It was burning household rubbish, which was pretty normal for my neighborhood. It was having the good fortune to fly back and forth from America to New Zealand every year to have two summers a year, which I see now was incredibly destructive. So for me to want to become sustainable and for taking on board the fact that climate change is happening as a defining part of my life and of how I see the world, I had to literally take a bit of a journey. And that meant going to China and being an English teacher there for two years. The city I lived in, which was a small city by Chinese standards, just uh, six million people, had a few large coal-fired power stations sort of right in the middle of the city. Air quality in that city was very low. As a teacher, I'd see my students come in most days wearing breath masks and experiencing terrible coughs. The natural world had really fallen apart because of man-made activity, because of a relentless drive for economic growth, which has done amazing things in the country, but definitely came at a price. So for me now, when I talk about incineration and why it's so important to take care of our waste ourselves and and try to head off some of these things that sound really dire or hyperbolic or, or far-fetched. I just wanted to say that it's really not to me. When I close my eyes, I can still picture what it was like to be back there. And every time I look out the window and I'm able to take in the view I'm so fortunate to have of the Royal Botanic Garden here in Melbourne, I'm so grateful for blue sky and green trees, air I can breathe without a lot of worry, a lack of black phlegm in my lungs. And that's really what's driving me to do this. And I'm not sure if me saying this can at all convey this perspective, but it's definitely at least where I'm coming from. And I hope if you can kind of picture some of that in your mind, what it's like to be in a place where environmental concerns have been a low priority for so many years. I hope that helps to, to fuel you with some of the passion that fuels me to do this project and helps you to appreciate every day in this amazing place we live in and make us all think a little bit more about what we can do to protect it and pass it on to the next generation. 
And that's why waste is so important to me. So I really appreciate you all being here, listening, taking part, and taking this next step towards sustainability with me. Thank you. slogan (laughs) yes define waste number one why is it called waste is it waste or is it an overabundance of recycling and we haven't built the right plants to process that recycling as a result it's waste because it's left over you're listening to climactic the voice of the people on climate change and as you've heard we've used this episode the first in a two-part series to frame the recycling problem and to try to explain the exact nature of the so-called waste crisis. But Mark, have you noticed that more questions we ask, the more we need to ask? Yes, and I think, honestly, neither of us quite understood the extent of the recycling crisis once China pulled the plug. And the effect that's having on so many local councils throughout the country, particularly those that don't have the resources to fund their own waste recycling infrastructure. So I went back to my good friend Doug Holmes to get a few more answers, particularly on the waste to energy industry we're starting to hear a lot more about. All right, thank you for sitting down with me again, Doug, for the follow-up. So this is for the, the waste special we're doing, inspired a lot by our earlier talk and our talks before that. I decided this is a very timely and topical matter that had to be discussed because when I got here a year ago, Australia seemed to be all milk and honey and everything was going fine. And then a few <laughs> months ago, China's not taking all our recycling. Wait, all of our recycling is going to China in the first place. Now it's just backing up everywhere. It's going to landfills. And now some people are talking about burning it. So I understand you've got some history with companies deciding, hey, we've got an energy crisis. Hey, we've got a waste crisis. Bonzo, we've got a solution. <laughs> so to, just for a, a quick overview... Councils never expected to have to deal with our recycling themselves. For the last 10 years, they've had this panacea of they can send it off to China. It doesn't cost them very much. They'll take all of it. They're the biggest plastic manufacturer in the world. So waste contractors are only too happy to take it off their hands and send it off. Now that's gone. The door is shut. We found no sorting facility in the country can meet the new Chinese standards. And that 99% of what we've been sending up until now would no longer meet the standards. So... These councils are, are being buried under piles of waste, which everyone's using as the headline, and they're all loving it, and it's a fun turn of phrase. Right. So incineration. Can you give us an overview of why incinerators are so bad? Right. Well, yeah, thanks for having me again, Mark. I didn't think we'd be here so soon, but we obviously touched on stuff in the first time we were chatting, and I had mentioned and alluded to some of the other battles we'd had after, first of all, the power station and the impacts that would have for emissions from its stacks. And that led us as a group to look into other proposals that might crop up that follow the same sort of issues. So rewind a bit to 2016, a couple of years ago, we became aware of a proposal pre all the China stuff happening, which I guess is just being used by lobbyists to ram stuff home. But there was a company who wanted to approach um, the ACT government, so talking about, you know, where the national capital is here in Australia, 
And they had explained that they would have a process that could take certain materials, being plastics. Um, they claimed they would be the non-recyclable plastics that they would just try and concentrate on in their streams. Turned out later we found, of course, that would just be fictitious. They would take whatever plastics they could get. Based on those, they'd stick them in a kiln and then use the process called pyrolysis. So they go, we're not burning anything. We're just breaking stuff down anaerobically under heat and using all sorts of chemical terms. So people are like, what is pyrolysis? What's anaerobia? What's all this stuff? Bottom line is they just said, we've got patented processes. You stick plastics in a, basically a giant liquefied boiler and you then take the stuff that comes out and you turn it into diesel and you can use it in your buses. Government great. Okay. So we get to get rid of waste plastics. And you know, this, as, as I say at the time, this was specifically saying, you know, we'll protect somehow the pure plastics that would go into recycling being the better use case under the waste hierarchies, which is reduce the use in the first place, reuse it where you can, and then recycle it. Last resorts are kind of recover energy from it, or you just bury it into landfill. So they're kind of the less um, preferential over reduce, reuse, recycle. Somehow landfill in the argument got pushed down the bottoms so that suddenly energy reuse, your energy from waste, that they were trying to flip the pyramid basically and say, yeah, that's better than sticking in landfill where the plastic just sits there for hundreds of years and doesn't mm. really go anywhere. It might break down, but it, it can be in a contained space. How do you get plastics to break down back into fuel? You have to apply heat. Where does that heat come from? Or well, masses of natural gas being burnt to fire up the kilns to keep the heat going and topping up the process to get this stuff out. And so we said, well, that's going to be burning natural gas that then has emissions from the stacks. And we're back to what we were looking at with the power station, which are gas turbines. But then also you've got other stuff that comes off from the process of breaking plastics down, which let's face it, are oil on the face of it. Crude oil was extracted, made into plastic products. Now it's being broken back down again with heat back into crude oil effectively and into diesel, turning into fuel that you can burn off in the engines of trucks and buses, therefore negating the need for any of those vehicles to evolve into electric or otherwise, because now you can just say, cool, we're basically alongside fossil fuels, creating more fossil fuels with fossil fuels to keep feeding engines and locking up the actual feedstock, as they call it, the plastic sources for 30, 40 years to make it financially viable to build these sites. So my kids coming up to their teens are locked in until their 50s, like when my grandkids come along, hopefully one day, and they are not able to get out of this. It's all just being sewn up. So that gives you a bit of background. That was Doug Holmes, and he was describing in some detail how waste energy actually works through incineration and another method called pyrolysis and why this is a bad option. Yeah, one of the interesting points that Doug raised, Mark, was the fact that a waste-to-diesel program will not only have a shocking impact on air quality, mm-hmm. but that cheap diesel will only make it harder to move to cleaner transportation. So the process, if I was a booster for it and a promoter for it, and I was trying to spin the mm. best-case scenario, I could say, we've got mountains of waste here in Australia that's backing up because we're not able to export it anymore. Yet we've got this methodology in this process where we can turn it into diesel ourselves. Right now, just to check in another topic, there's this big review of our fuel reserves of Australia because the entire economy is driven by diesel. Mm-hmm. If we have a day without diesel, deliveries don't happen, supermarkets right. are empty, society grinds to a halt. Mm. So we can use this great technological innovation and we can turn waste into domestically produced, not foreign oil, domestic oil, domestic diesel. 
We can take waste materials that can't even be recycled if we don't dig too deeply into that, and we can turn it into diesel. That's what they were sort of promoting themselves as? Yeah, so scratch the surface. When we found out they would actually start taking feedstock that was recyclable plastics, and it wasn't just the great saving grace for a backlog of plastics we couldn't process, including contaminated plastics, there were other companies actually already setting up that can process, for example, films from agriculture that wraps the bales, for example, mm-hmm. or from food processing industry where there might be blood on the on the bags effectively, that there are companies that can actually dry clean the plastics and recycle their soft plastics. So there are solutions coming up all the time mm-hmm. as alternatives. But if you just take it on face value, sure, it sounds like a good idea. I've got a backlog. China's not taking it. Start shoving it through some of these processing centers and we get another resource to use. So we go to recovery from waste rather than recycle. Yes. So the question is, what is in this feedstock stream what is truly recyclable versus can only be recovered? There's no way to recycle it. And, and they will spin that none of this can be recycled. Therefore, the default is to say, let us get hold of it and we'll create another resource out of it, which is true. It's a resource recovery. But then you're undermining the whole move towards a circular economy. That in the first place, there should be reduced, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. But for 40 years, just put that whole thing on ice cut that top of the pyramid off when you see these waste hierarchy pyramids and just say we will remain at basically recovery or disposal. So you have to ask the questions, is anyone keeping an eye on it? No, the industry itself, we've seen that. Pretty much are in control of their own destination. We're so desperate that we don't ask the questions, just hand stuff over. Um, the catch-22 we found was once China crunch came along, of course, it's being doubly pitched as the solution to all your problems And now they've found that they may actually be paid for taking feedstock, whereas before they were going to be purchasing feedstock to take it away from other genuine recycling facilities, for example, because there's competition for this material. Now it's almost as an abundance. We don't have enough recycling in this country. So the overflow is like, fantastic, take it off your hands for you. Oh, and you can pay us to take it away because otherwise you're stuffed and you've got to deal with all this tonnage. As we've seen in the solar industry, Rich, as solar has come down in price, it can compete a lot better if... We maintain a diesel at an artificially cheap price because yeah. we're generating it ourselves through government subsidies for incinerators. That's not great. That entire process is using massive amounts of natural gas to incinerate plastics or, in the case of pyrolysis, to melt down plastics to make cheap diesel. And mm. that's really just a situation of using fossil fuels to make more fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. We're moving well away from the circular economy that Doug touches on here. And the circular economy is, of course, the, the regenerative economy where recycling reuse is a priority. By using fossil fuels to make more fossil fuels, it's just ridiculous. We're just going to a linear highway, single-use one, which really has no regard for sustainability. But we'll have more on that from Doug a bit later on. Doug also asks a good question, and that is, what is waste? Yeah, and he answers this with a, with another question. Is it waste or just too much recycling for us to handle and a massive opportunity? So when you look at incineration plants, it seems to be a, a very common rule of thumb among plans from incinerators is they require a 40-year guarantee of access to, and we're going to call it feedstock here, but to quickly explain what feedstock is, it is the waste stream. So whether that's general landfill waste or recycling waste or green waste, those are the feedstocks. So if that's going into an incinerator, the stuff going in is the feedstock, which is made up of those waste streams. 
So why the 40 years? Is that across every new incineration plant? And why is it 40 years? And what does that entail? Yeah, so roughly that's what I've repeatedly heard when I've dug into other projects overseas. So it, it may just be that the industry has settled on it. And so it's just generally accepted to talk 40-year plants. They are that far out. And they're saying that if they were to build the facility, they're planning for it to be online and available for up to 40 years, including maintenance. Therefore, the cost to be covered mean a minimum amount of feedstock has to be guaranteed. They can't build one and run out of feedstock. If you look at some of the um, incinerators in Europe, for example, there have been precedent cases where the linings start to break down inside these chambers that are subjected to continually high heat not just that, but within the heat and the exhaust flues that they're processing, they are there are some extremely noxious gases that they're attempting to cool and take out during the stack process before it exits. And if anything goes wrong, then that obviously gets out of the atmosphere. And in fact, there's always a background in the atmosphere. If it's a particulate matter, that stuff's going to get out and PM 2.5, our bodies can't process. So whenever you're living sort of downwind of these facilities, there's an immediate fallout. And then, of course, over time, it's a wider area. Particulates fly different distances based on their weights. So the attempt is to treat exhaust flue gas that's coming from whether it's incineration or pyrolysis. And even if they're using the as-build most modern technological solutions, they physically are subjected to unpredictable uh, conditions. So the gases that are generated inside the systems are dependent on the feedstock that goes in. Mm-hmm. So unless you're screening it and you're saying, I know what sorts of plastics or other materials are going in, you can't, you're not in control of what eventually is going into a system that is designed to process only certain source gases from certain source materials. Who is actually policing that and what are the quality controls around the streams going in? Mm. And often on the projects when you start to dig into the detail, they can't actually state or prove what the feedstock composition is. That's that because of a lack of, of resources they put in because it kind of defeats their entire purpose statement where if it's too expensive to sort to recycle in the first place, therefore we have to burn it, therefore we're not mm-hmm. sorting it to go into the... So- Bingo. If you, if you really wanted to honor the waste stream going in and put in all of the different you know, equipment that would have to be able to detect and separate, you would defeat the economics of the entire process. You have to cut corners and say, I can't screen it to that level. But the realities of their operation, incinerators are inherently unpredictable in what's going to be going into them. And the potential for it's like, uh, the, the potential for bad reactions within that space where heat's being applied to an unknown feedstock it's huge so <laughs> yeah have a chat to scientists about dealing with volatile compounds you know you're talking about something that can change state as it changes state and you continue heating it you're then dealing with a separate chain reaction everything is basically changing on the fly so you're having to build equipment that's trying to contain these chemical reactions that you don't even know fully what they are but you're having a best guess And no wonder the linings of some of the incinerators break down and then there is a major leak or exposure because at that point you're then reacting to try and shore up a kiln you didn't realise that was in such a fast rate of decline. Okay, so these incinerators are able to burn anything, whether it's green waste, commercial waste or recyclables. Yeah, that's right. And I didn't understand that when we first looked at this topic, Rich, but Mm. an incinerator you can put 
uh, cinder blocks into it, light demolition waste. You can pretty much get anything to burn if you apply enough energy. Of course, and the amount of natural gas you're having to give to the incinerator to fire that in the first place. The reaction that's happening inside it all depends on what you're putting into the incinerator. And of course, the operators aren't always sure what they're putting in and how it will react. No, that's right. Incineration is the the cheap, easy, and dirty solution to the waste crisis. They honestly can't afford to sort it properly. They don't Mm. know exactly what feedstocks are going in. This is how they're able to offer such a cheap potential solution to the crisis because they're Mm. not actually monitoring their feedstock properly. Mm -hmm. Mark, I'm reminded of that quote from the Waste Manager of Ipswich Council, which was the council that actually shut down its waste program. Yeah, that's right. He gave a press conference and said, you know, in a very sort of blasé fashion, the long-term solution was zero waste, which would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Or waste to energy. And, of course, you always say, well, you can have this option or you could have this option. Yeah. Waste to energy at that scale of a city council definitely means incineration. So we know they're looking at it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that. And it looks like waste to energy is definitely a long-term solution, Mark. I mean... Our councils would be locked into contracts for decades if they did take the decision to build incinerators. That's right. It's not only a long-term commitment, but it may not be a solution at all. If we value our air quality and curbing the greenhouse effect, which we all do. Yes, we should do. Incineration and and all forms of waste recovery only hinder that process through Mm. emissions and through the fossil fuels that get used in their operation. And we're going to hear Doug's thoughts on the phrase waste to energy, and they're quite interesting, but this time in the context of what that really means. Waste to energy, what are your thoughts on that slogan? (laughs) Yes, define waste. Number one, why is it called waste? Is it waste? Or is it an overabundance of recycling and we haven't built the right plants to process that recycling? As a result, it's waste because it's leftover. The industry will have you believe there's no other way to interpret this other than it's waste. It's the excess, it's the abundance. So we should be building the plants to process that in the way that we know already works, but we don't have the capacity. Then you get back to circular economy, which is designed in the first instance to have less materials that are in that excess so much bigger picture is if you get to the circular economy you are changing the materials used the way in which those materials are formed into the physical shapes and stuff we consume and the way that they can then return back into a base state afterwards we've talked a bit about the circular economy doug and just in case the people out there who like myself even a couple months ago I'd, I'd heard the term before, but I couldn't explain it any better than I could explain the singularity or Shangri-La. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does the circular economy mean to you, and how could you explain it to someone else who doesn't know what it means? So I became aware of the circular economy in investigating why so many materials are basically just going to be destroyed in a recovery process. Okay, so and in the context of this energy recovery and waste in, energy. In the context that those materials exist for recovery because they've not been able to be reduced, reused or recycled in the higher levels of the waste pyramid. You know, I used to work for Apple and their sustainability track record is huge. They publish what they are trying to do to eliminate certain chemicals in the manufacturing process, the materials that go into the products, the high recyclability of the products. 
they are truly believing and striving and are those that are being influenced by the circular economy to think this product won't end up going into landfill at the end or even into e-waste. It's actually designed to be recycled, that you can take it back to the source being, for example, in the case of Apple, where you have purchased the product and they will responsibly break that down. They have their own processes to do so. So they are saying, yes, we're creating a lot of stuff that would otherwise be e-waste if it was a cheaper quality handset. Part of the price that you are paying is fundamentally sustaining that model. It goes in as part of the R&D. It goes into making a circular product that starts well and ends well. Okay, so you just touched there on the circular economy, Mark, and I think that's vital to any discussion of how we want the system to be. Yeah, I agree completely, Rich. As I said in the interview, and I'm quite open with it, I'm really new to the concept. I don't know my way around the circular economy model that well. And I'm definitely not a design thinker, not yet. And it seems to me it's quite obvious that if you're designing a product, having in mind the end of life and reusability of that product, and you know, whether that's a single use item like a like a toothbrush on a plane or a you know toothbrush you're using in your home, mm. or it's a it's a massive gigantic factory, we absolutely need to think about what happens to it after we're done with it. And, yes. and we need that if we're gonna be at all sustainable. Yeah, it's fairly new to me too, the phrase circular versus linear economy, Mark. I have have a background in permaculture and in chatting to some farmers on the Rural Food Chain, which is my Whole Foods podcast. And I think of it, the circular economy, in terms of agriculture and farmers caring for the soil. Now, I've spoken to a few farmers who practice biodynamics and caring for the soil is the first thing you do. If you look after the soil, you look after the whatever it is you're growing, whether it's stock, whether it's vegetables, and it's putting back into the soil to replenish it rather than just taking from it and then after, say, 30, 40 years, it's completely gone. And really, farmers will have to think about what the state of their soils will be after a harvest, and they should embrace the idea that they'll be working towards having to do as little as possible for it to be ready for the next planting. Now, that does mean a lot of conscious choices and forward thinking throughout the season. So that's an example of applied circular economy thinking in relation to the land. That's great. I I really understand what that means in the terms of agriculture, and I think that does help me a lot understand just what the circular economy is Mm. all about. Um, It's also really great to, to hear that a company like Apple is embracing it as well in, in their own way. You know, if farmers and tech companies are on board, Rich, I suppose it's really important for us all to be aware of the downsides of the business's usual practices, the linear. And honestly, linear is a great word for it, Rich. It scares me a lot because linear has an end point where we run out. Everything's exhausted. We really need to push that thinking into our businesses and local councils for adoption of more circular economy thinking. And that push is going to come from below, from ratepayers and from taxpayers and from consumers. Yeah, that's right. So let's hear a little bit more from Doug about why we need this push right now and just how scary potentially incineration is. It seems like there's a lot of movement, again, towards incineration because of the China recycling crisis. It's, it really has lit a fire under this movement again for council. <laughs> fire. Yeah. Digging through these terrible puns as well. Um, it's, it's, it has lit a fire, excuse the pun, 
under councils and waste management companies who do see it as a solution. Get out of jail. Yeah. So there's either going to have to be a lot more community fights against incineration, or there's going to be a lot more incinerators. So you're right. So having looked into the details around a pyrolysis proposal and finding out that there were health impacts as a result that a panel had to be convened, no precedent had been set, no proof could be given of the feedstock composition, and therefore that the actual facility being built would cater to all those feedstock variations to protect public health, it ultimately had to run off and try and find somewhere else to set up. And that is what we're seeing. We're seeing these projects spin up in one place. You may have a really good, strong, passionate group of people like us that have got the background and understanding the human health impacts. You can articulate it and fight and the proposal runs away. It will then go and find a path of least resistance. It'll go and set up overseas in some other backwater city that's quite happy with its mayor and councillors to go, yep, we buy and we get that model. We're going to align with it absolutely directly and go, we have a problem. You have a solution. We're also going to get fuel out of this or we're going to get heat to help power homes by running you know, steam turbines effectively. Then fantastic. We have, a, we have people that can buy into that at a community level who don't want to dig through the detail and look at what the nasty impacts are. We can just forget about that for now because it's just going on top of the background pollution coming out of the trucks that are running up and down a highway anyway, which I can physically see the dirty, smelly smoke coming out of them, whereas you won't see what's coming out of the stacks because it's tiny fine particulate matter that's more impacting our lung and capillaries and blood systems and that's the impact that we just cannot quantify you don't know what it's going to do you know it's going to have a negative impact to human health but you can't predict up front how much you're being subjected to but we can count the dead in china exactly here's a hypothetical so i'm at a council that has a coal power plant operating nearby that feeds into my grid. So my constituents are already dealing with coal pollution emissions. Now China's not taking our recycling. Our waste contractor wants to make our rate from $30 a ton for recycling to $150 a ton. I have to increase my rates. Mm-hmm. So I, if I'm lucky enough to not have a state cap on my rates, giving me the council the ability to do that, I say, I want to raise my rates. And then a company comes in and says, look, we'll build you this lovely incinerator. I'll take all the waste you can give me. Your rates can stay exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. Your constituents are already dealing with a certain amount of emissions. that yep. they're, they're used to it. Isn't there an extra element there, though? And we haven't talked about this yet, but the, the Stockholm Convention, isn't incineration actually, can we do a legal fight against this? Because it is... The emissions incinerators are producing are against our right to clean air. Yes, you're absolutely right. So I've heard the Stockholm Convention mentioned in the context that we are responsible way beyond your local council, way beyond your state, your country's government. We are talking about impacts on the world at large. There's no such thing as Australian air. It's not our air. Right, we're breathing stuff that started over in the US yesterday. You know, air is moving, so we are all globally part of this super sticking up in the sky. You'll be well aware of it if you see cities like LA where they've got a much higher concentration of the larger particulate matter you can see, but the smaller stuff travels further. It's blown in the jet stream, it gets around the world. So if you go and build one of these facilities today, you're basically saying, that's okay, I'm just adding to the soup in the sky. 
I am redirecting those materials from landfill to a landfill in the sky. They then persist and live on up there forever and ever, rather than going into the ground and persisting there forever and ever, maybe in a contained space where we have a lined tip and, you know, it can't leach anywhere. At least you've got it in a sort of a state where it's pretty much inert. So Stockholm Convention is, do we have the right or do these companies have the right to say, oh, damn, I didn't get set up over there. I'll go and try somewhere else until they get through. The same facility ends up built somewhere in the world and ironically impacts you just the same. So health effects are a big part of that. We're seeing healthcare costs go through the roof in the entire developed world. So what did you find about the, the true costs to health in Canberra with this proposed plant? So yes, the group actually uncovered a report that talked to what will be the health costs based on the changing state of air quality. So it was a hypothetical situation of saying, if particulate matter, for example, was to rise by X percent over a certain period of time, then there would be a, a direct attributable cost per head based on increasing population as well that they could cost out the future. But who pays that at the end of the day? Because healthcare costs are normally burdened by us as taxpayers funding the health system. And again, all those costs are outsourced for these heavy industries who aren't interested in trying to pay it forward and include basically you know, rebates or compensation in effect in advance of the impact they're about to cause negatively on us all because there is no goodness in this. But that's redo and gloom. Can I just like, you know, rephrase no goodness as in how can you possibly tell me that you're going to negatively impact my air quality and it's going to have any positive benefit to me? How can that, how can the, just for the actual f- <laughs> <laughs> When you stop me, uh, it is so crazy, Mark. But then again, we all go out and buy cars. We yes. all jump on mass transit. Probably the cleanest thing, you know, I don't mind a train. I look at the trains and I find them a thing of beauty. They're running off of an electrical grid. I'm not seeing or smelling any fumes coming out. I know that if that's a coal-fired power station in Hunter Valley, okay, not good. But if we're moving towards that renewable grid and it's Elon's battery and a bunch of windmills and that's getting that train into the city centre, there is embodied energy in having built a train and the infrastructure. There's embodied energy in building the chemicals that go into the batteries. There's embodied energy in manufacturing the turbines that go into the wind turbines, the massive structures that hold them up. But based on your choice of materials, you can probably minimize the impact and then recycle all the materials down the track. But we've always got to say, yes, there's embodied energy, but there is a benefit embodying it in that kind of structure that's then helping to create a sustainable grid, as opposed to embodied energy being put into building kilns that are just going to nuclear, supposedly called waste. Doug Shaw is passionate, isn't he? <laughs> he really is, and it's really contagious. Yeah. <laughs> and he's so right there too, Mark. I mean, if something is going to be harmful to human health, how can we possibly get on board with it as a, being a good thing? I don't think we can anymore, Rich. I think we, we all know better, and we should start acting better. Uh, the the business case alone, this is what really bugs me as like a business student, is it's it's so tenuous. If incinerators have to be guaranteed feedstock for forty years in order to make a profit and be worthwhile, 
That's such a risky investment just commercially. I mean, what other business demands that their suppliers guarantee them that product for 40 years or else? Yep. Yeah, as we were discussing off air, Mark, you could have a future government who may be more responsive to human health and, of course, take more environmental concerns into being. God, we can hope. Yeah, we can only hope for that. that but they could easily place clean air regulations that could sink these incinerators overnight. Yeah, and that would be a great thing, that if we got these incinerators in, we could get rid of them, but we'd be much better off with them not going in in the first place because mm. if they go in – Councils would be out of pocket because they'd yep. be shouldering a lot of that expense. Of they course, still yeah. wouldn't have invested in the recycling infrastructure. It would be this problem, once again, just kicking the can down the road. But more important than any of that, Rich, we would have wasted a lot of time. And what do we say about time in the context of climate change, Mark? That we don't have time, Rich. And we'd have undone a lot of public education work around waste and doing waste the right way. We've spent a lot of money and time trying to promote avoiding, minimizing, and recycling the whole waste hierarchy. We've tried to tell people the right way to get rid of their waste and how to treat it responsibly. But incineration instead promotes the buy anything, burn everything, linear economy, which by definition has a shelf life. Absolutely. So this was part one of a two-part waste special. And yes, we were delayed because this topic has grown so large. And the topic is more than large. Honestly, it's huge. And we have to reframe and rethink waste. Because waste isn't a very accurate label at all. It's a source of resources for new progressive industries. And through upcycling, recycling, recovering in the form of composting and anaerobic digestion, it can help us make a better, more sustainable world. Absolutely, Maka. But it also is being sought after by companies who are looking to make a buck as a feedstock for incinerators. And that's why I wanted to cover this straight away, because this is a pressing topic right now. You know, all of us, if we're listening, if we've got our ears up, we'll start to hear rumblings about waste to energy. Mm. It started already. And we now know a lot more about what that means. So in the next episode of this waste special, we'll be back to our upbeat selves, yes. we promise, <laughs> and highlight the opportunities that are all around us. That China's decision is a chance to grow. But for now, please take a moment to share this with a friend and talk to them about what you would do if you heard there were plans for a waste-to-energy facility, quote-unquote, that was coming to your area. Yeah, I've been asking myself that question, Rich, honestly. Mm. If there was an incinerator or other waste-to-energy plant coming to my area, would I be like Doug? Would I have the courage to spend nights and weekends fighting it? You know, would I do it for the sake of my own health? or for the health of my kids. And for the sake of the wider community, Mark, and for its impact on the warming of the planet that really affects us all. But really, your local council wants to hear from you. I mean, what do you think about air quality, kids' health, and pollution control in your local area? They want to know. Yeah, that's right. And, and one good thing to bear in mind with all of this, folks, is that when there's plans to pollute the air, like waste energy does 100%, hmm. remember, it's not just our air. We've had a great time putting this together. Thank you very much for listening. Good evening, Matt Wordsworth with ABC News. After Ipswich Council decided to bin its recycling program, there are concerns more councils will follow suit. Some have blamed the rising costs on China's ban on imported waste, but industry leaders say a national approach is needed to find new long-term solutions. Melanie Vojkovic reports. 
It's an announcement that's taken Queensland by surprise. I heard about it this week, uh, like everybody else did. The council should have notified residents. Ipswich City Council's decision to axe its recycling program and avoid skyrocketing costs of $2 million per annum. We cannot afford to put our rates up by 2% purely and simply for recycling. The Mayor says more than half of items being placed in yellow bins was unrecyclable waste, admitting the city's curbside collections have already been going to landfill for four weeks. We're at a crossroads now, and whether we're willing to accept that or not, if we continue recycling at a cost, it is unsustainable in its current form. Queensland's local government association predicts Ipswich is just the first and many more councils across the country will follow. The loss of the China markets have meant and is impacting on local government to the tune of four or five hundred percent increase. The state government has been touting a waste levy for months but no start date's been set. It is pledging to pour that money into incentivising more recycling as some other states do. It also wants to establish a waste to energy industry but hasn't said how. We know that these are big ambitious plans but quite frankly we don't have any more options left available to us since China pulled the floor out of the recycling market. Experts don't agree, putting it down to poor planning. This thing isn't out of the blue. It's not something is, that's insurmountable. It's just a matter of a responsible council. He says Ipswich has set a dangerous benchmark. Other councils say for now they will not be making any changes. 80% of what goes into that yellow top bin is recycled right here in Brisbane. Our waste should all be dealt with onshore. We should not be sending our recycling offshore. But a Bundaberg recycling plant which employs disabled workers says it's struggling to find buyers. We have over 600 bales of that low-grade plastic um, sitting in stockpile at the moment. And industry leaders believe the country needs a complete system reset. So I want the community to have confidence that recycling is sustainable. It's not the end of recycling. Instead, he hopes the beginning of global change. Melanie Vukovic, ABC News, Ipswich. And now, folks, there's just a few people we'd like to thank. Because I'm the one doing this recording, I get the chance to thank Rich, my fantastic co-host, the brilliant editor of this show, for all the hard work he's put in. So thank you very much, Rich. I'd also like to thank Abby Hawkins, our amazing designer. The work she put in for the Climactic logo is just paying off day after day, and I'm starting to get recognized by people in my shirt, which is just such a great feeling. So... Thank you so much, Abby. Please check her out and hire her at abigailhawkins.com. For our amazing theme music, both the old and the new, thank you, Greg Grassi. Please check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. And our fantastic producer, Caleb Fidicaro. Feel free to check him out on Twitter at HipsterJazzBo. And last but definitely not least, our amazing chief advisor, Gretchen Miller. Thank you very much, Gretchen, for all your advice once again and uh, for letting us know you think we are getting there. That's so great to hear. And finally, thank you to all you who are listening. We know across Victoria, ACT, New South Wales, there's a bunch of you tuning in. 
Those of you in the U.S. and Europe, thank you as well. I'd love to know who you are and where you're listening from. And we really look forward to bringing you more of the solutions to the waste crisis in part two. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.